Welcome to the Burlap Podcast. My name is Chris Abel. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Chris Fulmsby is unfortunately not with us today, but in his place, we're excited to say we have Bruce Neufer here from the Nazarene Publishing House, which is now called Foundry Publishing. That's right. It's a cool name. Uh, Bruce is the executive brand director uh, working with Burlap, uh, our podcast, our books, our publishing, and some other products that are kind of yeah. In the works. Yeah, a lot and coming in 2018. I'm excited to have Bruce with us today. He works behind the scenes most of the time, but we're we're here with him today because he's got some really cool ideas. He's working on a book idea. We're going to hash that out today. And we just wanted to give you kind of a, a look behind the scenes of some of the people who are influencing Burlap. And uh, Bruce has... Um, Bruce, are you a baby boomer? No, Gen X. You're Gen X. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't... I hope that's not, no. not, not insulting. And no. You just, you could look... You look very like you're, you transcend age. <laughs> A nice way of saying you look old. No, no, <laughs> no. You could, yeah. Sorry. So we're we're gonna move on here. So Bruce, you've been working with the publishing house, uh, who are part owners of Burlap. Uh, they're investors. They see a lot of potential in where our organization's going. Uh, they believe in the mission, right, of helping churches reach millennials and uh, upcoming generations. Uh, but you specifically uh, work w- work in all sorts of different areas. One of those areas is you have a history of working with books and publishing. Specifically, I remember when we first were introduced, we discovered that you wrote one of my favorite books that I ever used when I was a youth minister. It was called The Kingdom Experiment. And uh, I was just a huge fan. It was really hard to find materials for youth groups that were challenging and kind of nuanced theologically. But you've got another book in the works. And what I hear is that it's a combination of theology and environmentalism. So I know a lot of people might find that intriguing. All sorts of studies show that millennials uh, find uh, environmentalism to be a big issue. And yet when it comes to church, when it comes to theology, uh, we rarely talk about it, especially in the mainline Protestant church. Maybe in certain little bubbles, but for the most part, it doesn't make uh, an impact in a lot of Christian's thought processes. So I hear you're working on a project based on this. So like, let's hear about it. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, this is a, a place in my life that God's still dealing with me, and so articulating it is still something I'm working on. Um, <clears throat> uh, let me go back a little bit to... A lot of people in my generation, a lot of Gen Xers who grew up in the church, we are uh, somewhat recovering from what seemed to be a pretty pervasive fundamentalism, uh, especially in the 70s and in the early 80s. Um, a lot of my peers have, have told me they're dealing with some of the same issues. Uh, and, and so in soon after the, I was out of college, you know, in the early 90s, uh, the issue of environmentalism was being talked about because of the discovery of a hole in the ozone layer. And uh, given my very conservative position, um, I was pretty much on the side of, okay, what ozone hole? Um, you know, you're making this up. This is a political issue. Uh, there were some early things that were coming out from NASA. I remember at the time some space shuttle flights came back and they were reporting, you know, we don't see a hole or the hole is not as significant as we had previously um, thought. And, and so there were some things that triggered us to think, 
okay, they're trying to make this into a political issue, and I'm not falling for it. And so I've thought that way for a long time. And then I began to can I can I just interrupt real quick? Yeah. So so this is like pre Google, right? So <laughs> like you were just getting the, you were literally having to like listen to like you know AM radio to get this this information oh, yeah. about the ozone. Oh, yeah. no, I'm just kidding. No, but but you probably yeah. newspapers, TV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So it was just, you were like it was word of mouth, right? So a lot of exactly. your information that you got was just the people. Yeah, newspaper the, you know. news. I was I was addicted to the evening news at the time. Um, and I remember hearing about this. I was in middle school, and I remember being terrified that our planet was yeah, being yeah. destroyed, right? There was this giant hole floating over our heads. And, you know, that terror was part of what I was, I was in opposition against. Clearly, there was some fear-mongering going on. I mean, the news sensationalizes everything to make us, you know, tune in. And so... So is your book on the ozone hole? <laughs> no, but that's where this all got started. The, the, as I began to... Um, as the Lord began to deal with me, you know, at different stages in your spiritual walk, uh, as, as the Lord is perfecting you in a walk of holiness, he presents different things that are issues at different times. And and one of the ways my thinking, God has led me to looking at the way uh, millennials think about things. And um, I started feeling a bit convicted about being intellectually honest with things and not being so fundamentalist about scripture, I felt like the Lord was, was spurring me to quit trying to defend him and pursue truth. Whoa. There's like a lot to that sentence that yeah. you said, right? Yeah. Quit trying to defend God <laughs> right. and to pursue truth. Right. Which is really profound. I mean, in that, in that, in that statement, you're basically saying, that I was focused on the wrong things, that a focus on God can mislead you from something God may, may be wanting you to look at instead. Well, you know, you're, you're not really defending God for God's sake. You're defending God because you're afraid, what if the things I've thought aren't true? And um, So the ozone layer didn't represent just the ozone layer. The ozone layer represented... For me, it did. For me, it, did. It, it, for me it was just a political issue. So um, it was just politics. It was just politics, but I began as that argument and where I've kind of come on environmental issues is representative for me of a larger spiritual issue of my pursuit of holiness and um, the Lord's work in my life, understanding the place of scripture to inform us in our daily lives. Um, it's just an example of of that bigger thing. So the ozone layer for you was a starting point, an example of an attitude. Yes, yes. Towards politics in some ways, towards a mindset about how yes. you encounter what science. Yeah, yeah. Information that maybe doesn't make you feel great. Right. I mean, okay, go back in history. You can see this all throughout history. The, the church has. You know, for centuries, the church always seems to find itself opposed to science because they feel like science is threatening the truth of Scripture. Right. You have Galileo, well, you, you know, Dawkins. And Galileo was based on Copernicus. And for some reason, the church in those days felt like if you say that the, the earth isn't the center of the universe, then it contradicts Scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, all it took, I say all it took, it took centuries, but it took Christians finally realizing 
okay, this doesn't disrupt Scripture. We've been looking at Scripture incorrectly. And that's kind of what I was coming through as I, as I went through college and, and post-college. I was, I was coming around to the idea that um, look for the truth, and if the truth appears to contradict what I believe about Scripture, then I need to pursue both. Um, if it looks to me like what science is coming up with a lot of factual evidence for something, whatever it is, and I feel like Scripture has said something completely opposite, instead of telling myself the scientists are lying, the scientists have a political agenda, whatever, um, after I'm convinced that there's no agenda there, then I need to go back to Scripture and look at those passages that I'm relying on and say, does this passage say what I think it says? You know, you begin to look at the commentaries, you begin to read different scholars and try to understand what was the original language, what was the context, what was the culture in which this was said, how might my perspective have been incorrect regarding this particular scripture passage, because clearly or increasingly science is establishing this thing as factual. How can that be factual and contradict scripture? Can you help us understand what was going through your head in the 90s like when it came to scripture? Why, why was the ozone layer so challenging <clears throat> to scripture? Well, like I said, that, that wasn't... Let me, let me use a different uh, example at, at the time was um, the issue of evolution. In the 80s... Um, it's still a pretty big issue. It is. It's still something that I think as Christians we are coming to grips with, and it's an excellent example of this, that... <clears throat> the um, the factual basis for evolution, uh, the evidence is enormous. I mean, it, it's it, it's beyond a conspiracy. I mean, it would be history's biggest conspiracy ever <laughs> if this was all concocted and made up and not true. Um, and I don't believe that. I don't believe this is the biggest conspiracy ever. So if evolution is true, then what am I thinking contradicts it in Scripture? Right. So you have this. You have Adam and Eve who are placed here, right? Right, they right. We don't see any evolutionary history with, with exactly. them. Exactly. So you have to reconsider yeah, so how am I reading challenges... Scripture that might be better understood in a different way. Which is why a lot of pastors and scholars are saying those first chapters of Genesis are poetic reading of truths. And I'm a literature guy. I have a master's degree in literature. I teach. I still teach literature and English. I teach some marketing classes. Um, and so that's always been my approach to Scripture is for a, a hearty appreciation of the literary aspect. So it's pretty easy for me to get there. Um, now it is. Now it is. Well, it was... I was able to make that transition more quickly because of that. Oh. I think there are individuals who don't have that appreciation for parts of Scripture as literature um, and have a more difficult time making that transition. So the ozone hole issue that came up at the time, I didn't see this as even connected. I just thought it was a political football. I'm not falling for it. And, and to be fair... Um, the, the fear-mongering that happens from uh, people who are very passionate about conservation and, and environmental issues is not always intellectually honest either. 
And, um, you know, that is fatal to trying to persuade someone to your idea of thinking. I think some of the most reprehensible actions out there are scientists who lie in their research. Yep. Because that's what we're counting on to determine what's true. And now, because I have some background in academia, I understand the pressures that come to bear on um, a scientist being uh, pressured to come up with positive results for security of their jobs and other things. So I understand what's going on there, but the far reaching implications of a scientist who lies about the research and the evidence is really, really morally reprehensible. Um, so when I began, when the Lord really began to deal with me, um, about pursuing truth, that was when I had to confront things like this whole ozone hole issue. Okay, I had to step back and say, I'm seeing this as a political issue. I don't care about politics. Put politics aside. Hmm. Is this true or is this not true? And so go to the evidence, look at the science, see what people are saying about it. And as the years went by and the evidence continued to mount, um, I started thinking, okay, maybe there is something to this. At the same time, I'm coming across the passages in scriptures that are helping me understand that that creation is alive. Um, you know, there there are literary aspects to scripture personifying nature, but there's also an aspect where I understand that the grass and the rocks and and the water is not just some inert mass. Just for us to use as a disposable Exactly, you know, exactly. Tool. Which puts me into a mindset of um, to really begin to appreciate what is our role as stewards of the earth. Forget about the whole environmental issue entirely. What is expected of me to care for this organism that God gave us? Mm. Can we pause just for a second? Yeah. And, and just, we might be, somebody who's listening to this might be asking, all right, what does this have to do with reaching millennials? <laughs> so let's just, let's just talk about that for a second and then continue. So I grew up with um, TV shows and movies uh, like Ferngully, The Last oh, Rainforest, yes. right? Oh, what a and Captain movie. Planet, where you had uh, a few people with big hearts, a few young kids <laughs> who were fighting back against corpor- corporations who were greedy and yeah. trying to break the planet. Um, Ferngully, right? It's like terrifying. It's well, Avatar so, is like, like the update of the oh, Ferngully movie. It's the same I haven't movie. I have thought about that. But done way better. It's a three. It's a four D environmentalism. You know, cheerleading movie. Yeah, I mean, it's still. Which didn't. there's three it's, more coming out. It's not as overtly didactic as Fern Gully was. So, um, so I grew up surrounded by. So you had already had kind of like a world view and a mindset you were immersed in when this stuff started being talked about more. When Fern like, Gully I came out, I remember seeing Fern Gully and I was like, "What a load of garbage!" <laughs> I mean, it was so manipulative, and so people people like to uh, poke fun at Christian literature because it's so didactic. You know, there's somebody getting saved on every page. Ferngully <laughs> is the exact same thing, just in a non-Christian sphere, which is, which is why on this whole issue regarding environmentalism, I reject pretty much both sides of the political ideology. The conservative side and the liberal side are both trying to manipulate the information to coerce people to think one particular way. To vote a certain way. way. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, 
Yeah. Well, so you didn't like Fern Gully. Oh, it was horrible. So I'm sharing these TV shows though, because this is this is what an entire generation grew up on. Was this right. idea uh, like that environmentalism is like the the big thing? Like it right. was it was a narrative that was told told all Earth the time. Earth Day was huge in schools and yeah. yeah. And so yeah. studies right now show that for millennials, that it is the issue. They say that Gen Z is going to be more um, human rights, social justice. Uh-huh. But for millennials, it's still environmentalism. It's right. a big deal. Um, as a side point, I just like, I think this is a hilarious story. I, I used to live in DC and I, when I would fly home, I'd sit on the plane with like random cool people that had like interesting stories. So I sat on the plane once with some CEO um, of a company who travels the world educating governments on how to be more econ- uh, more um, responsible with their basically like treatment of the planet and so they, they she had flown to india and it was telling me about like how india is stepping up all its environmental they're, they're trying to become more responsible um, environmentally so she said she she when it comes to millennials and hiring millennials she says she usually just hires whoever puts in the most effort and I thought that was so funny. Like if you call back a second or third time, huh. like that's usually who she'll yeah. hire because yeah. she never hears from some of these people. That uh-huh. she, and so she said though, one of the biggest um, challenges is that um, she wants somebody to want to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Right. And so an example she used is she walked up to a young woman in her twenties who was working at this environmental agency, uh, global environmental agency. And uh, she noticed there was an aluminum can in her trash can. In this, in her cube, and she said, "Hey, what is this?" And this young woman said, "Oh, the um, recycling bin's all the way down the hallway." <laughs> and she used this as an example of, "Oh my gosh, your generation! Like, please, you've got, you can't just like the issue; you have to do something about it." Which I, I thought was hilarious. But that's a side note. So, but this is a big, this is a big deal for millennials. And so we wanted to set this up, right? So millennials have this kind of. Um, appreciation, care, concern. I've been grown up with a concern for the environment. And yet older generations, Gen X, baby boomers and older, there's more skepticism involved, tradition, especially yeah. in Christian circles. Yeah. Even today, uh, I think one of the most recent studies, um, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of Christians are associating themselves with, they, they don't believe in climate change even to today. It's right. not the ozone you know, anymore. It's about climate change right. in ge- general. Right. Um, when I was, I used to be in the Assemblies of God, and I'm a Methodist pastor now, uh, but I used to be in the Assemblies of God. And I remember uh, one day having a conversation with someone at church, and the attitude from this guy who was, I th- he was maybe Gen X, close to baby boomer, again, ageless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, his attitude was, um, when we talked about this, he was like, He's like, I'm just gonna. I just burn my. I just burn everything. I'm like, what? What are you? Are you gonna steward? Like, why don't you recycle? It's like two more seconds of work. And he said, God's just gonna make all things new, anyways. Like that was his logic. Yeah. And that why recycle when God's gonna just wipe out the planet and just make something new? See, I'm in a line right there. I agree with him more than you do. But not so much that I accept that argument as why he's. Burning things. To me, it's the same argument of, well, my body's going to be made new, so I'm going to just become obese and smoke, <laughs> right? And stop yeah, taking right. care of myself. Right, right. Like, just be- okay, but <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to go down that particular rabbit trail yet. It gets pretty specific. Okay. The, but we're just setting up the, the tension <clears throat> yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, That's right, right. The, the big divide that seems to be happening between generations. Right, Chances right. are your church has steered clear from this conversation because yeah. there's no wins yeah, here. Yeah, right. If you convince someone that environmentalism is a theological issue... 
Great, you have a new recycler in your midst, right? And maybe one but reason cost... some millennials aren't going to a particular church now is somebody yeah. dared to talk about it from a previous, from a more of a fundamentalist perspective, and they're like, okay, these people are never going to get where I, where they understand my perspective. I'm out of here. So we understand that this isn't necessarily a big conversation in your church, but we wanted to explore it today. Um, because it's just a book we're hashing out. We're seeing if there's interest here. Right. Yeah. And uh, we think it impacts, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's it's impacting millennials. And this is something that you have to understand if you want to understand changing generations. And this is something I also wanted to give Bruce a chance to kind of share his kind of transformation story here, which is, sounds like you're still on a journey in the midst yeah, yeah. of this, right? So let's go back to the book, though. You were saying... <clears throat> okay, so fast forward, we're into the 2000s. You know, I'm continuing to look at these portions of scripture. I, uh, my my thought about the earth as a um, you know something that is alive is is growing. God's kind of placing that in my heart. All the conversations going on in the political sphere. I'm not really engaged in it too much. I definitely understand the um, the people who are poking fun at climate change and and the panic mode. Um, you know, Dennis Miller is a very conservative comedian and he likes to talk about, uh, uh, climate change. I think at one time I remember one of these comments that he said was, you know, is it just me or does the fact that the average temperature of the earth is increasing one degree every century? He said, that seems really stable to me. And I thought that was funny when he said that. And I kind of agreed with it in the intervening years. I've rethought, I kind of go back to that statement. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think maybe that's a bigger deal than he sees it. So anyway, all of this is playing in my head. I'm kind of, I'm seeing all sorts of different issues where I'm dealing with, with seek the truth. Don't try and support an ideology and mm. don't try to defend God. If it's true, if there appears to be enough, uh, whatever I determine to be enough, factual evidence that supports this idea and it contradicts Scripture, then go back to Scripture, do some study, try to figure out, am I looking at this incorrectly? So <clears throat> then I come across uh, the, this book, The Overview Effect, which is actually a really hard book to get a hold of. Um, and I don't remember where I first heard of the the concept of what the overview effect was. But in short, uh, it's, it's something that happens to astronauts. <clears throat> you can look at all the pictures of space that you want to, all these really cool things that we see all the time. And astronauts are, are as, as much or more in tune to all those things as we are. But there is nothing you can do to intellectually prepare for the impact of seeing the earth from space that the first time you see it from outside of the earth, you suddenly understand, well, number one, we're in space. And number two, we are incredibly alone, that there's nothing around it. Um, and that there's a difference between seeing the earth from 100 to 200 miles up, where you can make out rivers and coastlines and things like that, to seeing it from the surface of the moon, where now all you see are continents and large bodies of land and space. And this incredibly thin layer of atmosphere that separates it from space. I'm getting chills just hearing you describe. <laughs> I'm like imagining picturing all the pictures I've seen. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it wasn't until the Apollo space missions 
and the astronauts began to come back that the Environmental Protection Agency was even formed because of the impact of seeing these pictures of the Earth from space and people beginning to have this real, this same realization. Um, the astronauts who do what are called the extravehicular activities, where basically they go on a spacewalk, said it's even more, it heightens the impact of that because now you're not looking at it through a window. You just, are in space. Yeah, just you in yeah. your little suit. Yeah. And Ugh. the one of the overriding um, understandings that these these astronauts come away with is this is one thing. The Earth is not, there are no boundary dividing lines. When you look at a continent, it's just a mass of land. We are one people on one thing, and we got to take care of this because if you look around, there's just blackness out here. And if we screw this up, there is no second chance. And uh, there, so that's a, that is the reason a lot of astronauts become environmentalists is because of the understanding of this. That story is essentially what got me fully committed to, okay, I have to be a Christian who is supportive and aware of environmental issues. Now, so I've got, I've got here a, the definition of the overview effect from, I just pulled it from Wikipedia. So let's, yep. let's read this just to give people. This uh, is from a, that book. I can, I recognize this. The overview effect is a cognitive shift in awareness reported by some astronauts and cosmonauts during spaceflight often while viewing the Earth from orbit or from the lunar surface. It refers to the experience of seeing firsthand the reality of the Earth in space, which is immediately understood to be tiny, fragile ball of life, hanging in the void, shielded and nourished by a paper-thin atmosphere. From space, national boundaries vanish, the conflicts that divide people become less important, and the need to create a planetary society with the united will to protect this pale blue dot becomes both obvious and imperative. So that's a quote from probably the book you were yeah. looking at. Yeah. Uh, man, that's really something. Yeah. So that's what, what I still have a lot of conservative views regarding this topic. For instance, the, the story you told about the woman who, um, you know, kind of had a fit because she threw the aluminum pop can, you know, in the trash instead of walking down the hall. Um, okay, so I've been in the publishing industry for more than two decades now. Um, and I've thought about this issue of recycling quite a lot. Uh, there used to be, where I drive to work, um, there used to be this huge landfill off the one side of the road. I mean, what a terrible idea to put that right within eyesight of everybody, you know, thousands and thousands of people driving by it every day. So... I have, I, I still, I always remember that landfill and number one, how short a time it took to fill it up and then they have to move on to someplace else because it was full. Um, and so I'm aware and sensitive of things like packaging issues. It irritates me when I get this huge cardboard box in the mail with something that could have fit in an envelope. Um, so I have an appreciation for those things. In the same way though, I also understand that the lumber industry in the United States grows their own forests specifically to be cut down and processed. Uh, the lumber industry in the United States is not the cause of deforestation on the planet. We should not villainize the lumber industry because they're cutting down trees. Those trees wouldn't have grown in the first place if they weren't in business to do what they're doing. 
So I'm not to the the degree that I feel like every piece of paper I use should be recycled paper. The other piece of that argument is being in the publishing industry, and we owned our own printing plant for many of those years, and you could go over to the plant and <clears throat> think about how much scrap paper a commercial printer generates. It is, it's enormous. And we had this huge machine called a baler, and all the scrap paper would get sucked up into these giant vacuum tubes and put into this container until there was a semi-truckload-sized bale of scrap paper. Originally, let's see, back in the 90s, that paper was worth so little, it cost us money to recycle it. Um, because nobody wanted to pay the price of buying recycled paper. So they would recycle it and sell it, but they'd have to sell it more expensive because all the labor that was involved. And I'm mentally going back to the fact that a lot of this stuff was grown to be destroyed anyway. And so I'm thinking, how worthwhile is it to recycle it when it's going to cost you additional money and these trees are being regrown for the same thing to happen again? So I understand that conservative aspect to it. It has but a financial impact. It has a yeah. financial impact. Um, and somebody asked me, I have a really good friend uh, who's a millennial, and she and I have sort of established this relationship where when we don't understand the other generation, we go to each other and say, okay, you got to explain to me the way you think here. She's been really instrumental in helping me identify, um, you know, the casual remarks of sexism and racism that um, I grew up with that are embedded in the system of language that I learned just growing up and that I don't recognize now. You know, she's the one who'll come back when somebody tells a blonde joke and say, you don't see sexism in the office? That person told a blonde joke and everyone laughed and nobody said anything about it. That's sexism. Mm. So she, she's very instructive to me in teaching me about these things. And we had this discussion about paper. And at one point I told her, I don't believe in recycling, which I know is an is a inflammatory statement because that's not exactly how I feel. And she said, is that a joke? You really know? And so we had this discussion about the paper issue. But that's the United States. And I think that the United States is largely very responsible as far as um, the conservation of public lands, um, the laws about what you can do and can't do, and the lumber industry is intentionally growing those forests and things like that. And I understand that that's not true around the world. Right. And there are places in the world that there is... You know, it is tragic what is happening to the earth because of irresponsible lumbering and things like that. So I'm fully on board with those, you know, that side of the issue. I think the same thing is true to a large degree with lots of things, right. whether it's aluminum or whether it's, you know, whatever. So my disposition regarding environmental issues is um, I'm going to try to be responsible I'm going to um, try not to produce a lot of waste. Uh, I will do what I can. I will do what I can for that, but I'm not going to spend double my income in order to support that. In the last couple of years, my in along this vein, my attention have turned toward um, sustainable agriculture. Yeah, you know, if you buy grass-fed beef, you know, here in Kansas City, it's you know, four fifty-five bucks a pound if you buy it at its very cheapest, whereas you know the non-sustainable beef might be two ninety-nine or three ninety-nine a pound. 
Um, so, you know, how much money do you have that week? Can you choose to buy grass-fed or not? Right. Um, <clears throat> we have a Keurig machine at my house. I don't use it, and my wife does. I don't villainize her for using it, although I do understand that it's a sore spot for environmentalists who look at all the waste those little K-cups create. Mm. I create. I use pour-over coffee. Um, so I, I live in that tension, and... For me, it comes back to a spiritual issue. Where am I on this issue? What are the economics involved? So for you, the more politicized it gets, the the less you're you're interested. Exactly. You feel when things it, hit a political level, I tune you out. Because I think a lot of people do that. Yeah. And that's what's happened with environmentalism today, is it's become such a political left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, that right. it's no longer people aren't able to think about it clearly and neutrally. As it as but that overview effect brings me out of the political realm. It That's pulls right. you above. Yes, because yeah. there's no lines right. on the planet Earth. I still have to care for the Earth because this is what we've got, and Scripture is clear. I think Scripture is clear that God has given us a moral imperative to steward the Earth responsibly. Yeah. So forget about politics. Forget about whether recycling is or isn't productive, what is my role in being a good steward of the resources produced on the earth? Forget about all that stuff. And, you know, um, that helps me get beyond a lot of that garbage and be able to focus on, to me, what is the spiritual issue? Um, you can, you can go down this road and you can look at hunting another way that I am, I, really get frustrated with um, the liberal political argument um, is conservatives are often um, villainized for uh, being people who don't care about the environment. But statistics say that a large percentage of outdoors people, hunters and fishermen or fisher persons, um, are, uh, are conservatives. Well, they prefer not to eat fish that's been swimming in toxic waters. They're right. not irresponsible environmentally. At least not all of them are. Not with these broad brushstrokes that uh, you know a more liberal mindset might paint them with. But is hunting um, environmentally conscious? Well, it can be. It depends. You know, are you trophy hunting? No, that's not. If you're just going out there to get the biggest buck and the biggest head that you can put on your wall, that's not. But the argument you hear from hunters is overpopulation of deer is a very real thing. Yeah. And they are creating a service when they hunt. That's fine. And if you, if you pursue hunting in that direction, I completely agree with them. I lived in Michigan for years. And, you know, you'd go to the parties or whatever, and there was always somebody who had little had brought their venison jerky or, you know, sausages or whatever. And I enjoyed those like other people, and I have no problems with that. Um, Trophy hunting is a whole different thing. But you, your point here is that people who, hunters and fisher people, <laughs> tend to be <laughs> respectful of nature. Yeah. Right? They don't want to pollute it. They... And I think to a large degree, they feel like, you know, they're being, um, people are looking down on them because they're irresponsible environmentally when it's not true at all. I think you've got a great point that politics creates it paralyzes movement sometimes in that it becomes a political issue instead right. of one that you can just think about I, th I love the idea that the overview effect frees us 
from the political side of things and brings us to a place where we're, we're asking the question, how is God asking us to take care of this thing? Yeah, this pale it, blue it's dot. not a matter of necessarily what's right or wrong. It's a matter of what's best. Right. It's not going to hurt me to use a stewardship approach to caring for the earth. Who cares what I think environmentally, whether I am for it or against it politically, the spiritual imperative seems pretty clear to me, and it's not going to hurt me. So you seem like you're caught in this in between this world, right? Where yeah, like yeah. there's some people that you feel looked at, like judged by. Yeah. At the same time, you feel challenged by, through your faith to right. to do something right. to help protect this place. Right. And I think there's a lot of people out there, and I think we're talking about this today because um, this is helping us understand like two different mindsets. Right. Um, and that's to me that's one of the the things about why this podcast applies to millennials is this kind of thinking of Pursue what's true and don't spend your energy trying to defend God or the Bible. They'll square up because, like Fulmsby likes to say, all truth is God's truth. They'll square up. You might have some work to do to figure out how they square up. But if you spend your time trying to protect your interpretation of Scripture— and there's something factual that contradicts your interpretation of Scripture, you've lost millennials. Yeah. And you should. I mean, if you cannot be intellectually honest with what it means to be a human in our world and understanding our world because you're afraid it's going to rupture Scripture to a degree that you lose your faith, that's other work you've got to do. That's, that doesn't have anything to do with the argument. That's some personal work you need to dig into. Well, this is interesting. There's a Bible verse uh, in John, John 3, 3, and there's this moment where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and um, he says, you know, Master, you've done these amazing things. Who are you? And, you know, what do I have to do? And Jesus responds with, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Or sometimes this, is, this Bible verse is translated born again. And what's fascinating about this is that this Greek word here, can be translated not only born anew, uh, but born from above. And so the conversation continues, and Nicodemus says, well, how do I climb back inside my you know, my mother? And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. And I think it's fascinating that there's this, Jesus says this idea of, I assure you, unless someone is born from above, like, again, we don't know the, the intention in English of what Jesus was trying to say, but I love this idea, unless you're born from above, like you can see... Um, the world through this higher perspective. And that's why I think Jesus always, you know, the Israelites in the first century were looking for uh, a new kingdom, like a new physical kingdom with boundaries and leaders and armies and borders. And Jesus talked about this kingdom of heaven. The word for heaven is sky. It's the same word in Greek and Hebrew, like this kingdom of sky. And you need to be born from above and looking down. And it's just fascinating because this is the same conversation Jesus was having 2000 years ago is you need to transcend the politics of today. You need to transcend the 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 ideology that's just beneficial for one particular kind of empire mm-hmm. and you need to see the world from God's perspective and that things will change. Yeah. And man, like if we could all just take a little quick trip to space, right? If we could get <laughs> yeah, Elon right. Musk to get yeah. really affordable flights to space, uh, through SpaceX, we could all take a view and maybe change our perspectives on how to take care of this place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else you want to add? Uh, you know, I think 
Um, I would just love to hear from listeners who are sitting there thinking, okay, I get what you're talking about in the whole environmentalism issue, but this other issue that I'm dealing with, it's the same thing. I would love to know what are those other issues, because as I'm as I, we're you know as I'm thinking about putting this into a book and trying to create something of it, it's hard to escape my own perspective on this particular issue, but I know that there are other issues that are similar to this. I've got some off the top of my head. What about puppy mills? What about those giant, uh, you know, stuffed animals at carnivals? Like they're so big. How do you even get them home? We could do one on, uh, no, I'm just messing with you now. (laughs) (laughs) Are beards cool still? (laughs) I've got so many ideas. So, that well, guys, sell. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of the Burlap Podcast. We will be back in a couple weeks. And if you have any questions, again, you can find us at thinkburlap.com. And it's been a good conversation. Thanks for being on, Bruce. Yeah, I appreciate it.